Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. We use science to do what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. Before we dive into today's show, we want to know what you think of the podcast at DC and get your ideas for the topics we should be covering going forward. Whether this is your first time tuning in or you're a seasoned listener, go to tinyurl.com slash the podcast at DC. There you'll find our listener survey. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents. And now for the episode. Every year, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, requires jurisdictions to conduct a census and survey of persons experiencing homelessness. These surveys, called point-in-time counts, provide a snapshot of the population of adults and children experiencing homelessness on a given night each year. In January 2019, D.C. implemented a supplemental qualitative survey with its PIT count, called the PIT Plus. The survey sought to understand what led to individuals' experiences of homelessness and what could have prevented those experiences. On this episode of the podcast at D.C., I'll be speaking with Tom Fredrickson and Elizabeth Young from the Community Partnership for the Prevention of Homelessness, or TCP for short. TCP has conducted traditional pit counts in the district since 2001 and spearheaded the effort to conduct the pit plus. We'll also hear from Hirsch Gupta, a data scientist at the DC Department of Human Services and a lab fellow. Hirsch collaborated with TCP to analyze the results of this new survey. Tom, Elizabeth, and Hirsch. Welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So Tom and Elizabeth, you work at the Community Partnership for the Prevention of Homelessness, or TCP for short. Would you tell us a little bit about TCP and your individual roles there? Sure. So TCP is a nonprofit organization that works with both the federal government, particularly with HUD, and the local government, particularly with Department of Human Services, or DHS, to implement the homeless services programming that those two departments fund. We also oversee what's called the HMIS, or Homeless Management Information System. That's an online repository for information on the folks that are being served by those programs. And then we also have a role in implementing one of the district's rental assistance programs called ERAP. My role is primarily in overseeing the implementation of that HMIS and making sure that we're up to date with the changes in the data standards that are coming from the federal government and overseeing all of those data and reporting projects that we, when we give information back to DHS or to HUD or to the local interagency council on homelessness or DCICH, just about on kind of how the system is functioning, how the population is changing over time and how the individual programs are performing relative to one another. And Elizabeth, how about you? So I'm a senior analyst at the Community Partnership, and in that role, I lead some of the data collection and reporting events that we have, including the point-in-time count, which happens annually in January. It's kind of the official estimate on homelessness in the district, as well as other kind of special reporting events like the Homeless Youth Census, which we do in the end of summer with young people who are experiencing homelessness, as well as the point-in-time count plus, which we're here to talk to you about. And Hirsch, how would you describe the mission and work of D.C.'s Department of Human Services, and where do you fit into it? Yeah, so the D.C. Department of Human Services, our mission is twofold. One is to address homelessness within the district and then also 
provide benefits, including TANF, temporary assistance for needy families, and SNAP supplemental nutritional assistance program. These programs benefit low-income families throughout the district. My role as a data scientist, I work within the Family Services Administration, and the Family Services Administration oversees programs both on the family's side and the individual's side. And what that means are programs that support the homelessness population. And obviously you all collaborated on this project, but how do DHS and TCP typically work together? What's the relationship like there? They're our primary funder. DHS actually provides the bulk of the funding that the district receives for homeless services, which in the district we're pretty unique in that. In most jurisdictions, the vast majority of the funding is coming from the federal government. But in the district, we're lucky enough to have a really large allocation coming through local funds primarily to DHS. DHS subcontracts some of that funding to the community partnership to establish programs and then run the HMIS and perform projects such as the PIT Plus. And Tom, you mentioned the D.C. Interagency Council on Homelessness, or ICH. How are both DHS and TCP involved in the Interagency Council on Homelessness here in D.C.? How do you contribute to that work? So both our executive director at TCP and the director of DHS are voting members of the formal ICH body. The ICH's primary role is to act as the board for the continuum of care, which is basically a continuum of care is the planning body that makes decisions about how the resources allocated by the federal and local government will be spent on the implementation of homeless services. So the full ICH, which again, those two directors are sitting on with, I think, most of the rest of the mayor's cabinet and some other advocates and folks with lived experience, they are sort of getting into the weeds of the implementation of homeless services and seeing how we might make changes to the different types of resources that we're offering with the funding we're receiving or kind of on a more committee and subcommittee level, looking at maybe like budget asks or just ways that we could tweak individual programming to sort of make the system change as the population changes over time. And we'll want to get back to that later on in the podcast when we talk about for organizations that are contributing a lot to both the implementation and strategy to support individuals and homelessness in D.C., kind of what your work collectively suggests about where we might want to go next. So let's get into the work, actually. So before we go really deep into what is a lot of interesting data and really surprising results, at least from my perspective, I'd love if you could briefly describe the question you were trying to answer and some of the big findings. And so why don't we have one person describe the question? So we knew we were outplacing folks from both the family side and the single side through about the same number of housing placements over the course of a year. We knew that there was inflow into the system among folks newly experiencing or re-experiencing homelessness, but we wanted to better understand why. And what were some of the big takeaways that you had at a high level? Just kind of tease what we're going to talk about a little bit later on. I think what was really interesting to me was we knew from looking at shelter usage information and data that we had that we were seeing sort of dips in service histories over time. So we do a nightly census of all the low barrier shelters, all the shelters that serve single individuals on a given night. So we know how many people are using shelter and we can see that that number goes down over the holidays, on the Super Bowl. There's kind of events where you can see that the numbers are going down and that has always suggested to us that folks have social networks, have places to go, but we didn't have a lot of hard information information to back that up. And so this provided some good insight into where people were going when they weren't using shelter and whether or not those places were intended to be sort of 
once somebody exited shelter, that may or may not have been intended to be like a permanent arrangement to go live with a family member or a friend. And we could see if they ended up coming back into the shelter system after a time, that was really, I think, relevatory for us because our HMIS system is obviously recording time when people are using the system, but what it's not recording is information on when people are out of the system. I would also say that one of the big takeaways that I thought was interesting is the information we gathered on social networks that individuals had. And we asked questions that we don't normally ask about if they had someone who they felt safe and comfortable with, or you know if they have grown children who they're in contact with currently. And some of the information we gathered off of that question really, I think, helped to helps us think a little bit more about diversion that's possible in the district of really leveraging those social networks possibly. And you know maybe there's ways of kind of bolstering those networks so that we don't see folks having shelter as the only option when they have lost their housing. Yeah, and also one of the priorities of the ICH was to understand regional inflows. So when we saw that one third of the respondents were living in places other than the district, then that has important implications to the regional system of care. And it spurs on more collaboration or opportunities for collaboration between our continuums of care. So the specific survey that we are really excited to discuss with you all today is called the Point in Time Plus. Of course, to add the plus to it, there's likely a point in time component of it. And so, Elizabeth, you mentioned that this is what you work on a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about what the point in time count is and how it's conducted and why we do it? Sure. So the annual point in time count is a census and demographic survey, which is required of all areas that receive federal homeless services funding from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. So it's required that if you're receiving those funds, you conduct this census and get some information to report back to the federal government about folks who are experiencing homelessness in your jurisdiction. The point in time count happens every year during the last 10 days in January, and that's mandated by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Here in the district, we're actually gearing up to do our 2020 point in time count, which is on January 22nd, if anyone's interested. For folks that are interested in participating or just want to know what happens during the point in time count, what are we trying to do there? Right. So it is an enumeration of the both sheltered population as well as the unsheltered population here in the district. And so while we are conducting surveys with our shelter programs, we also recruit and train up about 300 volunteers here in the district to be on the street surveyors with trained outreach. So they go out into the street on one single night and conduct the demographic surveys with folks who they encounter who are sleeping there on the street that night. And if I remember correctly, this is late in the night, right? Or early in the morning? Yeah, absolutely. So we kick off the point in time count all together around 8 o'clock. usually have some special guests from the mayor's office or city council members there to really help get our volunteers pumped up. And then the volunteers are deployed out and spend about three to four hours on the street. And the reason that it's so late is really to ensure that we're finding folks who are bedded down for the night and who are actually sleeping for the night and are not just people wandering around. Mm -hmm. And what sort of things are they in the normal point in time or the pit? What sorts of things are these volunteers asking every single year? Yeah, so the questions are very standard demographic questions. So we ask about race, we ask about ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation. We also have a few questions about their involvement in various systems, so the adult and juvenile justice systems as well as child welfare, whether they have been in any sort of institutional setting recently, so rehabilitation program or a mental health facility 
And a couple of their questions just kind of on their experiences, if they have experiences in the U.S. military, if they're a veteran. And that's about it. It's pretty simple demographic survey. And Tom, how's the information that's collected during the pit intended to be used? So I think that demographic information is important because it helps us understand how much, if any, overrepresentation of any demographic group is in our homeless population. So looking at, like, say, unaccompanied individuals, obviously the gender split in the city nationally is about 50-50, but we're seeing probably closer to about 75 to 80% of unaccompanied individuals are men as opposed to women. So we know that when we build services, we're the folks that we need to target with the services that folks are presenting for. Part of the survey is also information on any like disabling conditions folks might be living with, if they've had stays in any kind of institutional settings in the past and whether or not they were discharged from those locations directly into homelessness. And that helps us sort of plan for the future in terms of, again, what kind of programs you might need to develop for the coming year. So it seems like it's both trying to understand what is happening among the homeless population now and also informing what we do next with it. Is that right? right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Hersha, DHS, how do you all end up using the data from the pit count for D.C.-specific issues? So it's mainly through the ICH that this information is presented and presented to both our providers as well as our sister agencies like the Department of Behavioral Health, the Child and Family Services Agencies. In conjunction, we can use this information as a benchmark to understand how we're performing as a department and as a continuum of care. Additionally, the point-in-time count has been used to inform our strategic plan here in the district called Homeward DC, Mm -hmm. which sets out a plan for ultimately ending homelessness here in DC. So we use these data to help us kind of track our progress and make updates on that plan as we see changes in the point-in-time count data. And so focusing still just on the point-in-time count, the pit that happens every single year, I want to ask a question that we like to ask researchers and folks that present research on the podcast each time. And the question is, why should we believe in the accuracy of the pit count? Why is this the way that we do it? And then on the flip side of it, what are the reasons that we might want to be skeptical of the results that we get from the pit count? Well, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind, that question comes up a lot about the skepticism over the numbers. Most of the count that is put together is from shelter and residential programs. So really those programs are just submitting rosters of the folks that are in their program on the night of the pit count. So that's about 90% of the number right there. So that tends to be pretty reliable information. I think where the skepticism comes in is about the unsheltered count. Are we really checking in with everybody that's experiencing homelessness and not accessing a program in that four or five hour span that the volunteers are out? To work to make sure that we are counting every single person that is not coming in, what we've done is sort of as a supplement to the point-in-time count on the day after, meal programs, drop-in centers, those kinds of locations are surveying folks about where they spent the previous night, and we aggregate all that information together to sort of inform the overall count. I also just want to point out, this is a point-in-time count, right? So this is really, the intention is to understand better at any given time how many folks can we expect are going to be experiencing homelessness in the district. So it's not the annual number of individuals or families who experience homelessness in the district. You know, folks come into the system, they exit. And so you really have to look at it as sort of a snapshot on the scope and scale of homelessness in the district. And as it's a snapshot, we know that there's a lot of seasonal variation, especially amongst those that use our shelter system. So we know that it might be representative of folks that are in shelter in the winter, but not necessarily representative of folks that are using shelter throughout the year. And because it occurs in January and because of the point that Tom shared earlier, I I imagine you do not do the point in time count to overlap with the Super Bowl, I'm guessing. No, (laughs) no. Usually the last Wednesday in January. Yeah. 
So let's turn to the point in time plus, the pit plus, which is the main topic for the day. So the point in time plus that you all worked on together. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to do this additional survey. It sounds like the point in time count is a big effort, something that's done every year. Why add something to it? Why take this extra effort for this survey? So our primary reason was after we had done like the 2018 point in time count, we were seeing a pattern start to emerge where our overall number from the count of everyone that we count in the district was going down, driven mostly by the number of families experiencing homelessness going down, but we were seeing an uptick in the number of individuals. Mm-hmm. And I think I mentioned, so we knew that that was from our HMIS information. We knew that that was folks that were newly experiencing. We knew that that was folks that were coming back to the system. And so we wanted to do this effort to sort of better understand why. We decided to tie it to the pit count itself just because there's a lot of energy in the community around the point in time count. Everybody that works in the space is really familiar with the project. We just wanted to capitalize on that as much as possible. It did add quite a bit more effort to the process in 2019, but we think we got a lot of really helpful information that's being used for system modeling and strategic planning. And Elizabeth or Tom, could you take us behind the scenes and say, like, how was this information being collected? What was going on in the survey? And how was that different from the traditional pit count? So we did them at the same types of locations. We had surveys being done in shelters. We had them at the drop-in centers, meal programs, even some transitional housing facilities because we weren't really as concerned with the point at which the person responding was where they were on their journey because we were focused on their history. And so everybody has one of those. So we weren't as worried about where people were accessing the system when we were asking the questions. But what we tried to do was have case managers and shelter and program staff work with folks to do the surveys that they already had a really established report with. Because of the length of the survey, it's over 60 questions. Because a lot of the questions are pretty personal in nature, we just wanted that sort of level of trust to be there so that the respondents felt comfortable not just answering the questions, but really getting into their story for the more narrative questions, rather, to get that more kind of qualitative information in addition to the quantitative that we would get with a regular PIP count. Why don't we give a kind of summary of the types of questions that are being answered, both the format of them and the content of them overall? Certainly. So the questions that we were asking range from different types. It was questions related to binary choice, multiple choice questions. But we also wanted to design questions where folks could explain their narrative, maybe in a more qualitative format that the surveyors could then use to code their responses accordingly. So we allowed folks to be more explanatory with their responses. And then what were the questions that we were asking about? Like what parts of their history, as Tom mentioned, did you really want to focus on? Certainly. So we know that folks experience homelessness in multiple points in time in their lives. What we really wanted to focus on, because we couldn't collect information on all those points in time, and that would be very over-encumbering our survey researchers to do that. So what we wanted to do was collect information on their first episode of homelessness and their most current episode of homelessness. So the questions on the Pit Count Plus survey were across a few different domains. First, where respondents were currently or usually staying. And we actually asked to list all of the places they stayed over the course of the past year to get a better sense of sort of that fluidity of where folks were staying. We also asked for how long respondents had been experiencing homelessness. You know, not just this one episode, but if they had multiple episodes, sort of what did the lengths of time look like there? We wanted to know if respondents had lived or were living outside of the district and if they had ever used any services outside of D.C. Also wanted to know what were the respondents' reasons for seeking or not seeking shelter in D.C.? 
what were some of the causes of respondents' current and first episode of homelessness, if those were different, and what could have prevented those experiences. We asked questions around who comprises the respondents' social networks, with what health issues are respondents living, with what other systems the respondents were engaging, so if they had ever been in the juvenile or adult justice systems, as well as the child welfare system. We also just asked the regular questions that are on the normal point-in-time count survey so that we could cross-reference the results from the PLUS survey. So let's get into the outcome. So what we learned. So obviously, a lot of different factors and really important factors that we're considering and asking folks about. So Tom, why don't we start with you? What did TCP and DHS generally learn from PIT Plus about the needs of adults experiencing homelessness in the district? I think we were surprised by just the overwhelming majority of folks pointing to employment as something that would help them be able to exit the shelter system or that the loss of employment actually was one of the major contributing factors to them becoming homeless. I think, you know, we had sort of heard a lot of that anecdotally to see that as the primary cause and primary thing that would help folks exit was really, I think, helpful for us to sort of understand the extent to which people are experiencing homelessness while sort of navigating the job market. And how does that contrast with what you hear kind of anecdotally or what, if you hadn't have done this survey, people might have thought or the collective wisdom might have been about what is the thing that's contributing to homelessness in the district? So when we do the point in time count, one of the questions that we ask is whether or not folks are employed. And it's usually, I would say, on the single side between maybe 20 and 25 percent of folks are reporting that they are employed as of the point in time date. Hmm. And I think that that might get interpreted by some folks as a lack of trying to become employed or want to be employed or be a part of the job market. I think we saw with the PIT Plus is that that was folks wanting to get out of that unemployed condition and, and to move into the labor force. And what were some of the other reasons that people gave for the causes of either their first episode of homelessness or the most recent one? I think one that we heard from a lot more people than we were expecting and one I don't think that we had really thought of much over the years was folks that were the dependent of another person, and then that person passed away. And Hmm. so they weren't able to maintain the housing on their own. We learned a lot about folks' social networks, and we knew to some extent that, especially looking at the family side, somebody might be staying with their mom or their sister, and then at some point that just isn't tenable any longer, and some of the family breaks off and goes into the shelter system. I don't think we had considered that as much for unaccompanied folks to realize that they were, I guess, at one point part of social networks, but those maybe just deteriorated for different reasons. And I think the one that stood out the most to us was just being independent of an older person that ultimately passed away and the housing situation was no longer available. Although we weren't specifically focusing on youth homelessness, what we did see was there was a skew when it came to asking folks about the cause of their first episode of homelessness, and it skewed to the younger respondents, folks that said that they were asked to leave by a family or friend as the primary cause of their first episode of homelessness were more likely to be younger. Interesting. So that people might generally think about it as being kicked out of the house or a house that you were staying at as being the cause. Certainly. And what do we know about the demographics of this population once you surveyed them? So one thing we see here in the district is that folks who are African-American are disproportionately represented in the homeless population here. And the general population, African-American individuals make up about 50% of the population, whereas we see folks who are experiencing homelessness, that number is closer to 80% of the homeless population. Wow. And what about the age of individuals? 
So the average or median age of the individuals is typically, depending on the snapshot we're looking at, it's typically between like about 49 and 52. We're seeing, I think, more and more on the family side, younger folks coming into the system that's sort of driving the average age on the family side downward, but it's always been sort of around that 49 to 52 range for individuals. Wow. So a lot older, even if we think of what Hirsch had just mentioned about one of the contributing factors being for younger individuals who are homeless being asked to leave a housing situation. But generally, we're talking about an older population. That's correct. Yeah. That leads us into another good question for researchy-minded audiences or the researchy-minded listeners that we have. So, Hirsch, you're a data scientist for the Department of Human Services. And when we do surveys, the big thing we care about is, is this representative of who we are trying to know about? And can we get an accurate picture of the people we are trying to learn about and the people we are trying to serve in this case? How did you go about thinking about representative? in the sample and in your reporting? Yeah, so when it comes to representativeness in a survey, you'd want the results to be generalizable to the broader population. Unfortunately, we didn't necessarily have that luxury because we were trying to get as many people as possible to take the survey. And so the survey, the point in time count plus survey, ended up being a convenience sample rather than a random sample. And randomness is really one of those things that you can use to isolate background factors and generalize to a broader population. Can you say a little bit more why you went with a convenient sample versus a random one if there are advantages to doing a random sample? So the advantage of doing a random sample is that you can generalize your results. There's a greater degree of generalizability to the broader population because you can control for a lot of the variation in different factors, including demographics, within your sample. So with this population, of course, there are folks that aren't the easiest to access, folks that might be moving around the district because they don't have a specific place where we can contact them, where they live, and we can call them up. Unfortunately, we don't have that. So what we were able to do here is, at day service programs or within shelters, assess them there. It was a way to not only get access to as many folks as possible, but also a greater degree of variation, folks that might be using shelter intermittently, folks that may not necessarily show up throughout the year. And how many people did you end up talking to in the long run? How many people participated in the survey? Yeah, overall, we had 1,065 folks participate in the survey. So it's 28% of the unaccompanied adult population. And we're just focusing on individuals here, so not families, but people who are on their own, at least at the time when you surveyed them, and not living with either dependents or partners or anything like that. Is that right? That's right. So obviously, we would love to have the resources and people to be able to do these random samples like we do for the American Community Survey or any of these really large national surveys that we do because of the advantages that you said. But what did you do kind of after you got the results? What are the ways that we can account for some of these differences that may occur from a convenience sample like you said? Yeah, so we know that our convenience sample, the folks that took the PIT Plus survey, they looked a little different when it came to certain demographic characteristics. We knew that they were a little younger based off of the fact that we collected this demographic information and we compared it to the point in time count. And what we were able to do, because we had that reference to the point in time count and it was taken during the same time, we were able to weight the convenience sample, the PIT Plus, according to the PIT count, the broader PIT count. So that allowed us to make the survey a little bit more generalizable to the PIT population. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so again, to Tom's point of really piggybacking off of the point in time count, you know that even if you have limitations in terms of who you're able to survey, because it's very close in time and you have that reference point that you can make those adjustments. And because you talk to so many people, it seems like you probably get a little bit more confidence that the results are generalizable. And several of you have mentioned throughout this idea of a social network and findings. What did you all find in the PIT Plus about the social networks of people who are homeless? I think one thing that was surprising to me was the number of single individuals that not only reported having children, but also being in contact with those children. Mm. And given that average age of folks were in their late 40s or early 50s, if their experience of homelessness had happened 20 years earlier, they might have been part of our family system as opposed Uh to the single system and thinking about the connection with their children. I think we were just surprised to see that that was so prevalent in folks that we had, because we refer to them as unaccompanied singles or individuals, that we just thought that that must be kind of the entirety of their social network, but we found out that wasn't true. What other questions did you ask about social network to get to this idea of who are these individuals in contact with? Well, it wasn't necessarily a question that we asked about social networks, but for those that reported using our shelter system, we asked where do they stay if shelter is not an option? In any given night, if they can't make it to shelter somehow, or maybe shelter is not available to them, where do they stay? And so we found almost a third of the population that uses shelter they stay with friends and family. So they have some support there, either through their friends or family, to procure at least temporary housing. Interesting. So it's not necessarily where someone is on a given night that is where they are every night. Is that right? That's, that's correct. That's, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I think this really helped to answer a question that we had out of the earlier inflow analysis that our community conducted a year ago. We saw in our homeless management information system, in our database of shelter usage, we saw individuals who had this sort of like episodic pattern of they'll be in a shelter facility for a month or two and then just disappear for some time and then be back for another month or two. And so I think one of the things we really wanted to understand was what's going on in those periods. And is there any way that like if they're not accessing our system, our shelter system, what could we do to sort of connect them to whatever that resource is and maybe help stabilize that resource so that they don't have to come back to shelter? And another thing that I think people are usually surprised over comes to mind when they might encounter someone who is homeless and unsheltered on the street is the question of why aren't they in shelter for these periods? So we talked about maybe they're staying with families, but for folks that are actually living on the street for a night or multiple nights, what did we learn from the PIP Plus about why people decided not to be in shelter for a given night or for a period of time? We saw that there were some concerns, and in some cases, I would say maybe even some misconceptions about the level of service that would be available in the shelter, the conditions in the shelter. I think the folks that expressed the most concern about using the shelter system are the folks that used it the least. So I think there was kind of a lot of word of mouth that was getting around about the quality of the shelters that were available that was keeping folks from wanting to use that. One of the things that I think was helpful with the PIT Plus, because again, folks were doing these surveys with their case managers, was we heard from several of the assessors that they were able to kind of mitigate some of those concerns and kind of talk folks into being able to get more connection to the system. And we'd seen, I think, a little bit more shelter use from some of the folks that typically hadn't in the past after engaging with the assessor and through the assessment. Interesting. So both the survey to inform what we're doing, but also actually something that can contribute to the efforts. 
What other outcomes did you um, did you see that were particularly surprising for you? Certainly, we tried to look at the relationships between the homelessness system as well as other systems where someone might think that there might be touch points, including incarceration, rehabilitation, as well as the child welfare system. And we saw that there was a large degree, over half of the population that responded in the survey had stated they were previously incarcerated. And of that, more than 50% stated that they entered homelessness as a result of exiting incarceration. Mm. We also found that those that had been involved in rehabilitation or treatment, even though it numbered only 31% of our sample, over 60% said that they had entered homelessness as a result of exiting that system. So for folks that are in rehabilitation of some type or some other service for either substance use or for mental health challenges, did people say that that was a common cause of homelessness? I think that's probably one of the things that people generally would think contributed to us. But what did the PIT Plus tell us about that? In the regular point in time count, we typically see, and this is in line nationally actually, that folks who report having substance use issues or mental health problems is only about a third of the total really? population for both categories. And an interesting phenomenon that we did see was that we saw males more likely to use the emergency room and we saw females more likely to use primary care. And as a result, we saw more women reporting a chronic health condition, but that could be due to the fact that that health condition is then diagnosed by their primary care physician. Interesting. So if you have a greater connection to our healthcare systems, then it could mean that you know more about your conditions and that's why you're reporting it. Certainly. And it's something that would require a little bit more analysis. Well, let's turn to what this means for DC's strategy or strategies for making homelessness rare, brief, and non-reoccurring, which is the goal of the Homeward DC plan that you had all mentioned earlier. Tom, why don't we start with you? So as I said, the plan to address homelessness in the district is called Homeward DC. Could you talk about what Homeward DC is and how these results are going to feed into it or inform it? So Homer DC is the strategic plan which sort of sets the framework for upcoming five years of what we need to accomplish in terms of our strategic goals and the kinds of programs we need to bring online to accomplish those. We are in the throes of planning the second iteration of that for the next five years. We wanted to get this PIT Plus done in advance of that so that we could really inform the system modeling that needed to go along with that to make some strategic decisions. In particular, I think what we saw because of the large number of folks newly experiencing or re-experiencing homelessness over time, that we needed more investment in diversion and prevention programming to help keep people from having to access or re-access the shelter system, in addition to the kinds of formal housing resources like rapid rehousing and permanent supportive housing, which a more traditional strategic plan would have called for. Can you say a little bit more what you mean by diversion? Just any kind of resources that would help sort of stabilize somebody in their housing crisis and keep them in their housing as opposed to having to enter the shelter system or rely on the homeless services system for other services. So you mentioned right at the start that one of the most surprising results was people's desire for employment and thinking of that as both a contributing factor to homelessness, but also the potential factor that could allow them to resolve their homelessness. What does that suggest about what either the ICH is considering or any of your organizations? 
organizations are considering. So part of the ICH, the Department of Employment Services is one of the member organizations of the ICH. And so they are certainly part of the conversation in terms of different kinds of training programs or employment incentives that we can use to help get people connected to the labor market again. One thing, though, that we've heard in the conversation is that if I'm experiencing homelessness, I can be working full time and not necessarily be able to afford housing as with the high cost market that we have here in the district. So we need to look at that in conjunction with housing, kind of affordable housing resources or other types of resources that will help sort of offset some of the housing costs for folks that are working and have experienced homelessness in the past, but don't have the kind of ongoing case management need that other folks might. Interesting. And if folks are interested in that, a short plug for the lab, if you stay tuned to us both on our newsletter and on social media and our website, you'll see some of our analysis on exactly how many people in the homelessness continuum of care are accessing employment services and what sorts of earnings in general people who are in the continuum of care have based on some of that work. So stay tuned for that. We mentioned earlier that some of what the PIT Plus looked at was where people are experiencing homelessness or where their first event of homelessness happened and whether they are D.C. residents or residents of surrounding communities and where they're receiving services. What do the results suggest about collaboration between surrounding jurisdictions on this issue? Certainly. As we see folks coming in from different jurisdictions within this area, It highlights the need for greater collaboration, and certainly what we've been doing is working with the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments to understand what their system looks like and their inflows and outflows and how it corresponds with our system as well. You know, when we produce studies like this, I always think it's a really good opportunity just for education, for educating people on the issues in D.C. And I kind of hope that by producing this information, we can start to kind of reframe the narrative of homelessness here in D.C., where our focus isn't just what is the Department of Human Services doing, you know, what do our shelters look like, but where we're looking at things, you know, very closely, like what does affordable housing look like? We talked a lot about jobs. What does that look like? What access do folks have to living wages? So hopefully this survey can help to kind of illuminate that for folks in the district. So Elizabeth, where can listeners go to learn more about the community partnership? So you can go to our website, which is www.community-partnership.org. And can they see the results of this survey there? They can. If they go to the facts and figures page on our website, you can find the results of this survey as well as other surveys that we've done in the past and our annual point in time count numbers as well. That's great. And I would encourage listeners to go to that and to read through the full report because I read a lot of reports in my job. And I have to say, as a credit to you all, it is very easy to read and is really well distilled into explanations of what you found. And there's a lot of information there, but it is not overwhelming in my mind. So if you're interested in this, really encourage you to go check out the full report. And you mentioned earlier that the pit count is a volunteer effort. How can folks find out about how they can participate in it? If anyone's interested in volunteering for the point-in-time count, which will be held on Wednesday, January 22nd, you can go to the registration website, dcpit.org. There you'll find information about which neighborhoods you can volunteer in and our training dates, which will be happening in mid-January. Great. And for folks that are interested, I strongly recommend you volunteer and have that experience and contribute to this important work. And Hirsch, where can we find out more information about services that DHS provides? Certainly. You can go to the website. DHS's website is dhs.dc.gov. And that will have more information about the various programs, housing programs, as well as benefit programs that we run. 
Great. And so I will put in one plug for the Lunch at DC. In March, we will be hosting a Lunch at DC event that will review the evidence on homelessness in the district. And so I'm sure the PIT Plus will be mentioned there in some way. So if you'd like to learn more about this important topic, and importantly, what we might do to counteract homelessness in the district, I encourage folks to connect with us and keep a lookout for that event coming soon. Well, Hirsch, Elizabeth, and Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having having us. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producer is Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. I want to take a moment here to share my thanks for the work of our podcast intern, Tim Madden. He's leaving the lab to finish his master's degree in audio engineering this spring, and I want to take the time to thank Tim for all his hard work on the podcast for the last six months. Tim worked through our immense backlog of audio and brought his amazing editing chops to our show. We just record this show in a regular government conference room, not a studio, and so editing our episodes is no light lift. You'll keep hearing Tim's name in our credits as we release more episodes that he made happen, but I wanted to call him out for all his hard work before he goes. Tim, thank you for everything. We will miss you, and we look forward to listening to what you do next. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney. 